0: Hi, folks. This is Danielle Sullivan, host of the Neurodivergent Podcast and owner of Neurodivergent Coaching. In less than two weeks, beginning on July 5th, we are starting our summer cohort of our very popular signature group coaching program, From Defeated to Inspired. This is a six-week program designed for neurodivergent adults who are overwhelmed, who are struggling to figure out how to organize your life, how to understand how to use your strengths and your gifts, to make life better for yourselves. If you're interested in learning about regulating your nervous system, getting clear on your personal values and your ideal daily experience, increasing your own interoceptive awareness and reducing your emotional reactivity, this is a great program for you. We still have a couple of spots left and we'd love you to join us. Please check out neurodiverging.com slash group hyphen coaching hyphen neurodivergent link in the description of this podcast to learn more and enroll today. We can't wait to work with you. Thanks. Hello and welcome back to the NeuroDiverging Podcast. My name is Danielle Sullivan and I am your host. If you did not listen to our last podcast, go ahead and stop this one and go listen to that one real quick as this is a part two of two, where we are talking about the history of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, also known as ADHD, from the 18th century onward. Our last episode covered the history of ADHD from the beginning of prehistory, basically, as far back as we can get it up to the 18th century, and has some important context for this episode to make any kind of sense. So go ahead and listen to that first. Before we dive into it, I just want to acknowledge that this is an older episode we've pulled out from the vaults while we work on some behind-the-scenes stuff at NeuroDay verging over the summer. So I do think this one is greatly valuable. And I also think a lot of our newer listeners may have missed it, as I believe this was the 10th podcast I ever recorded. So I hope you'll enjoy it. It really has a lot to say about why ADHD is still stigmatized in the current day, even though ADHD has been studied since the 1900s and has been acknowledged as an issue for much longer than that. And so uh, it's really important, I think, to know not only the history from the sense of like, we should know where we came from, but also the history because it really is still present in most of our current dialogues and advocacy around neurodiversity issues. So I hope you learned learn something from this episode and enjoy. Hello friends, welcome back to Neurodiverging, Danielle here. Today we are continuing our discussion on the history of ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. We've talked some about how we have good evidence that ADHD is a normal neurodivergence. The presentation or traits of ADHD are due to genetic variation, And they've been present in the human population for thousands of years that we know of, and probably longer throughout prehistory. So in the last episode of the series, I discussed the obtuse man, who was a Greek caricature of an ADHD seeming person from the third century CE. Then we talked briefly about the idea through the late 18th century in the West that ADHD, along with other neurodivergences and mental health challenges, was considered a sign of moral deficit. That is, if you had ADHD traits, you must have done something bad to earn them. "Quote unquote. Finally, in the early 1800s, a physician called Crichton published a series of volumes that began to call this into question. Crichton suggested that mental illness and neurodivergences as well were based in physiology, and he was the first person to have any traction with this theory. So today we're going to spend more time in the early modern era, working from the 1850s through the 1980s. Again, this is not meant to be a thorough exploration. There are many, many books out there, and I have some resources listed in the show notes if you'd like to explore further. Those are available at neurodiverging.com. But this is just an overview so that when you hear someone say ADHD, you have some idea of the historical and cultural context behind it. So, as I said, if you're interested in more information on ADHD, autism, other neurodivergences, uh, now and throughout history, please subscribe to this podcast and go check out the website at neurodiverging.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse with family So once Crichton introduces this idea that neurodivergence and mental illness are not related to sin or moral character, but are rather physiological in nature, we see several other prominent physicians start to jump on the bandwagon. In 1844, almost 50 years after Crichton published his books, the German physician Heinrich Hoffmann, who later went on to found the first mental hospital in Frankfurt, created some illustrated children's stories, including Fidgety Phil... Philip, who is nowadays a popular allegory for ADHD. Like Crichton, Hoffman rejected the common opinion that psychiatric patients were obsessed or criminal. Instead, he saw mental illness and neurodivergence as medical issues stemming from something in the physical body. Hoffman wrote a children's book called Struffelpeter, which he had created for his three-year-old son, Carl Philip, who may or may not have been his inspiration for the stories. The poem, Zappel Philip, or Fidgety Philip, probably the first written mention of something that looks very much like ADHD by a medical professional. In the story, the father asks his son to sit at the dinner table and be calm and eat. But the son is not able to sit still. He rocks back and forth on his chair until he loses his balance, taking the tablecloth and all of the dinner down with him. As a parent of a child with ADHD, this story was pretty familiar to me. Maybe it is familiar to you as well. So despite being the first medical professional to describe ADHD and being progressive in his treatment of mental illnesses for the time, Hoffman's depiction of ADHD in Zappel Philipp still focuses blame on the child. And although Philipp gets off relatively lightly, the children in the other stories in the collection fare much worse. The stories were very popular at the time, though, to the point that Zappel Philipp is still used today in German-speaking countries to refer to a child who fidgets, is restless, or constantly on the move. Hoffman's fidgety fill was important for being the first time a medical professional described ADHD, but it's sort of an incidental description, being more prescriptive for how children should and should not behave. Most historians seem to consider the real scientific starting point in the history of ADHD to be the Galstonian lectures of Sir George Frederick Still in 1902, about 60 years after Hoffman. The Galstonian Lectures on Some Abnormal Psychical Conditions in Children, long name, were presented before the Royal College of Physicians in London in March 1902, and then released by the Lancet, a very popular magazine, in April that year. Still described a group of 20 children he'd encountered in his pediatric practice who were defiant, extremely emotional, chaotic, spiteful and who didn't seem able to control themselves. He noted they had been raised in good homes to decent parents, but that this behavior still appeared early on in their lives. In his address, still discusses this group as having, quote, an abnormal defect of moral control, end quote, which he refers to as morbid, which means diseased. Still asked several questions of his audience in this lecture series, which basically boiled down to, does this set of symptoms together make a thing? And if this is a thing, is a set of symptoms I'm seeing caused by some underlying condition, or is it something that exists on its own, unrelated to any co-occurring medical issues? So still has seen a collection of symptoms, which we would now say would indicate possible ADHD. And he was the first medical professional to really notice this constellation of symptoms and consider what whether it was something on its own, as opposed to uh, co-occurring symptoms from un- another underlying disease. So now still described the set of behaviors he observed in his pediatric practice as being, quote, defects of moral control, where moral control was defined as the control of action in conformity with the idea of the good of all. One of Still's overall categories of moral deficiency is basically mischievousness or misbehavior—children who repeatedly do things they're not supposed to do, even if a parent or another adult warns them against it. We know, of course, that many children labeled troublemakers nowadays commonly struggle with impulsivity. To anyone with an impulsive child or who experiences impulsivity themselves, all of Still's examples will be very familiar. Still's work is important to the history of ADHD because he is the first doctor to recognize a collection of traits now known as ADHD as being related to each other, and one of the first medical professionals to say that ADHD was likely biological in origin. That said, most of his conjectures as to the nature of the relationship were flat-out wrong. With his theory of defective moral control, he's referring to a group of children as being disinterested in the good of the community, and more interested in their own goals and pursuits. Although this is true to some extent in most children, I would hazard to say, um, he's kind of calling these kids selfish at the root of it. And in a lot of his lecture, he seems to view them as almost malevolent doing bad things on purpose just to be bad. Most of Still's work is deeply ableist from our modern perspectives, and it's not fun to read for that reason. Uh, That said, it is still possible to recognize that overall, the group of kids he's talking about do seem to have traits of what we'd now call ADHD, and this is the first time a physician called that out. Additionally, the realization that these ADHD traits were biological in origin, as opposed to mental or psychological, also created the beginnings of the realization that punishing kids for these behaviors wouldn't fix them. Recognizing that clinical treatment was needed was the beginning of creating a better, kinder type of child rearing. So Still's work really caught on, and after his 1902 lecture, there's a spurt of activity around figuring out the biological mechanisms of ADHD. For example, William James, the father of American psychology, read Still's work and was very intrigued. James believed that the deficits in what he called inhibitory volition, moral control, and sustained attention were somehow caused by an underlying neurological defect or difference in the brain. He thought ADHD brains might have a decreased threshold for inhibition of response to various stimuli, or that there might be some disconnection within the cortex of the brain where intelligence was disassociated from willpower. James's work added to the growing idea that ADHD was biological not psychological in nature and then in 1936 the US Food and Drug Administration approved benzedrine as a medicine benzedrine was the first amphetamine marketed in the United States to treat conditions like depression in 1937 Dr. Charles Brady was trialing Benzedrine for behaviorally disordered kids who had severe headaches when he accidentally learned that his patients' behavior and performance in school improved when he gave this drug to them. This discovery was not well understood at the time, because doctors didn't get why a stimulant would improve these behavioral symptoms. But throughout the 1940s and 50s, these kids were sometimes treated with Benzedrine, as well as two other stimulants called Ritalin and Siler. It's in the 1950s that we start to see the use of hyperkinetic emotionally disturbed children and hyperkinetic impulse disorder as diagnoses. Which diagnosis was used seems to have depended largely on the doctor and the primary trait of concern. In the 1960s, minimally brain damaged became the popular way to refer to kids who had various combinations of impairment in perception, conceptualization, language, memory, and control of attention, impulse, or motor function. All of these diagnoses probably lumped together folks that we would distinguish between today, but scientists and doctors were starting to zoom in on ADHD and its specificities. All of these issues are still considered childhood problems, though. There's hardly any research done in this time period on what happens to children like this as adults. Many of them were probably institutionalized. Now, let me take a minute to mention the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, which is still the major publication used to diagnose neurodivergence and mental health issues today. The first edition was published by the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, in 1952, but it didn't include any mention of any of these earlier terms for ADHD. But in 1968, the second edition comes out, and that finally includes the disorders Hyperkinetic Reaction of Childhood or Adolescence and Organic Brain Syndrome. That's my favorite one. So the medical establishment has recognized these disorders and is beginning to codify how they should be diagnosed and treated. The year after that, in 1969, the first Connors Rating Scale is published by C. Keith Connors. Revised editions of this questionnaire are still used to help diagnose ADHD today for kids between 6 and 18 years old. So by the late 1960s and early 1970s, there's been enough research completed and enough consensus in the medical community about what's going on that Connors is able to pull together a resource that is still in use 50 years later. Now, in the 1970s, there begins to be a pretty significant backlash to ADHD, and especially treatment of ADHD with stimulant medications. This is due mostly to one newspaper article in the Washington Post, which drastically misrepresented the number of kids in the U.S. public school system being given stimulants, and also incorrectly implied that parents were being coerced into drugging their kids by the school systems. This article did so much damage and is still doing damage today as we continue to fight the effects of misinformation information published 50 years ago. This is important to the ADHD timeline, though, because this one article is where a lot of misperceptions about ADHD come from to this day, especially the idea that ADHD was created by the drug companies to sell stimulants. Fueled by the bad statistics in that article, a lot of anti-ADHD books came out in the 1970s, and a lot of them push quote-unquote facts that have now been disproven, like the idea that ADHD isn't a real thing, or that if it is, then it's just that food dyes cause hyperactivity, or sugar causes hyperactivity, or parents just aren't parenting hard enough, etc., These books are direct ancestors of modern day TV causes ADHD, video games cause ADHD, gluten causes ADHD hysteria, and they continue to cloud and mask the real biological causes of attention differences. I want to make a quick clarifying note here. You may personally find that food dyes or gluten or TV or whatever affects your ADHD. That's great. I'm not here to invalidate your experience, and I think that there probably are a small number of people who are able to control their ADHD by changing their diet or their electronic habits or whatever. We have research to support that as truth. But study after study has looked at this in groups, and the vast majority of ADHD folks are not affected over much by sugar or food dyes or gluten or electronics. Etc. I believe that pretending that they are just shames folks who are struggling instead of offering real support. So if it works for you, awesome. That doesn't mean it's going to work for other folks. It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? Anyway, this anti ADHD backlash pushes the American Academy of Pediatrics to publish their first statement about ADHD in 1975, called Medication for Hyperkinetic Children. So I'm not going to read you this statement in full, but it's only about a page long, and I'll put a link in the show notes if you are interested in reading it. Um, it's pretty straightforward, but there are some things we can learn from it. First, the American Academy of Pediatrics is recommending medication only when necessary and not as a first step. Second, the AAP is straightforward about the fact that the mechanism by which the drugs work and how to tell which drug to try when is not well understood at this time, and so drugs need to be used carefully and with oversight and prescribed by an actual doctor who's done a full diagnosis of the child in question. And finally, the AAP recognizes that what looks like hyperkinetic child syndrome might also be an expression of basic personality, anxiety, subclinical seizure disorders, strictly in the eyes of the beholder, or true hyperkinesis, because the method of diagnosis is not yet particularly objective or trustworthy, so the doctor needs to be keeping an eye on the results of any drug trial. So finally, in 1980, we hear the words attention deficit disorder for the first time when the dsm 3 is published. The DSM includes the subtypes ADD with hyperactivity, ADD without hyperactivity, and ADD residual type. So this is the evolution in the understanding of ADHD from the 1800s through the beginning of the 1980s when we finally get ADD in the diagnostic manual. We see the movement away from the model of ADHD being purely mental or psychological, and into the idea of ADHD as being caused by biological mechanisms. With this comes the understanding of a need for clinical diagnosis and treatment protocols, as what ADHD really is clarifies. Contemporary Danielle here again. Now that I have just listened to this episode for like the third time in a short period of time as I'm editing, I'm also realizing that there is something of interest in the idea that ADHD or at least the traits that we associate currently with ADHD, were originally attributed to a sort of uh, theological cause, right? Like your goodness as a person, your morality, um, your ability to be a human, very much tied in with your self-worth and your value to your community. And so it becomes socially defined in that way. Then we move into this medical model idea, right? Where You know, we have these professionals coming in of medical doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, etc., coming in and defining ADHD from what we would now term the medical model, right, which is this idea that ADHD is a disease, it's something abnormal, something that must be fixed. And obviously here at Neurodiverging, especially as we've grown, we have become more and more clear to in our support and identification with what we would call the neurodiversity model or the neuroaffirming model, which just means that we believe that there are piles and piles of different neurotypes out there that are all maybe defined by certain attributes or traits or ideas. There are ways that we function differently as people, but that all people, regardless of that neurotype that they may have or be assigned by society, still have inherent worth and value. So we've almost swung back away from the medical model and back into a different new social model, where people are now not defined by their purity or their eternal moral goodness, but rather from this idea of all brains are good brains, all brains have been created equal, all brains uh, have the same inherent worth to them, regardless of our ability or our contributions to the world or any of these other sort of moral framings. So I just think that's really interesting. I would love to hear any feedback on that. It's not a particularly well thought out thought, but just something that was coming to me as I was listening. Anyway, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and I hope uh, you found it valuable. I just want to give again a shout out to our amazing patrons who make the podcast run. Thank you so, so much to Jackie, RW Painter, Mashbook, Stev, Galactic Fae Creations, Emma, Teresa, Brianne, Angel, Megan, C, Shiloh, Valerie, Winnie, Joseph, Margie, and all the other patrons at patreon.com slash neurodiverging. If you would like to join, we would love to meet you. Head on over and see us there. Thanks so much for listening. And please remember, we are all in this together. Does your father know you're listening to this podcast? Well, when you're done, why don't you stop by and check out a show that is 100% dad approved. Dadages. Hi there. I'm Chad Higgs.